Hey, this is Afia Letham, creator of the Frame Your Day app, helping you walk out every day in victory. I'm proud to be a sponsor of Ramsey Unleash, going beyond borders. Hi, this is Zakia Ringgold from NaturalSoapByZakia.com, proud sponsors of the Ramsey Unleashed Going Beyond Borders podcast. And good day, everybody. This is uh, this is a Ramsey Unleashed Going Beyond Borders podcast, and I have a new guest. Um, and welcome to yeah, no, it's been a while to get getting the podcast. I've not been doing them as much, but it's nice to be able just to be able to have that opportunity to interview people and connect with, especially if you just you're connected with somebody on LinkedIn. And other platforms, it maybe whatever life throws at you and how you connect with people, you connect with them and suddenly you may not chat to them, but something happens or something they do something, it catches your eye, and vice versa in business or in life, uh, that you will want to connect with them and actually interview them about their what they're sort of launched or doing, basically. And so, I connected, I've been connected with Ian on. Um, LinkedIn was my guest. He's coming up. Um, he's from England and he wrote a book. And the reason why we're interviewing about his book is because it's a, a book that's called Are We There Yet? And it's an interesting story. Interesting story that how he went suddenly did, packed, I'm going to say, in, in a polite way, packed the wife up and the kids and <laughs> went traveling. I'm sure the wife would have something to say about that. But um, so we literally took the family and they went woohoo and decided to travel and they documented their experiences and everything and it's turned out to be coming to a book and we're going to discuss that we're going to discuss the kind of almost it might sound like a, the crazy idea just to do the craziness of it and just suddenly to randomly up sticks and go right we're going to travel and then come back and then suddenly write a book about it so obviously the process of doing that especially with kids in school taking them out of school still educating them and all that kind of uh, sort of roller coaster bumps that I'm sure they had to overcome just to be able to do these things to keep things going. So, we'll uh, going to talk to Ian about his book and we're going to discuss uh, just to really, let's see where he's from and we can, uh, his general background and what he does before the book. And then we can uh, we'll dive into the book and just to also to shout out to the people who support us. We've got Ephia Lethem from Frame Your Daywear, and uh, so it's good to have her and a shout out to Daniel Gomez from Daniel Gomez inspires um podcast as well and many other people who support us which is great but um but yeah so just want to welcome my guest ian welcome to the ramsey unleashed going beyond borders podcast how are you doing well thank you fraser very good indeed thank you good to be with you um, um i have a, uh, so let's dive into a little bit about you so who's ian pilbeen uh and let's uh, tell us a little bit about you in general your general background life um, and we can before we get into the book that you wrote and um, leading up to your de- decision to travel uh, and which obviously was gave, gave the product of the book so tell us a little bit about, about Ian Pilbeam uh, who are you well let's tell you about Ian Pilbeam the author um, but Ian Pilbeam the person as well so yes. um, let, let me read you the biography from the book that's as good okay, a place cool. to start as any um, yeah. so Ian Pilbeam is addicted to travel there's a word for that, by the way. It's called dromomania. 
That's your first fact right. for the day. Dramomania is an addiction Sorry. to travel. <laughs> Another new word that I've learned this yeah. year. Over the last... yeah. but when he's not running his human resources and health and safety business in his adopted hometown of Edinburgh, he's always planning the next trip. The biggest trip of all was the year his family went around the world in 2008-9. That let the genie out of the bottle and it will never go back in. Having grown up in Boston, Lincolnshire, this is where the accent comes from, Fraser. Okay. He, he met his Scottish wife-to-be, an Abedonian, on the Isle of Wight. Of all <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she, uh, she, she studied in Edinburgh, and um, that was her first job, the Isle of Wight. Uh, but via a circuitous route, they moved up to Scotland at the start of the millennium with a toddler and a bump and have never left apart from when they are away. So home, home for our family from 2000 uh, up until 2016 was East Lothian. And we set out for our year away from Dunbar. That's where our family home was. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then, as I said, we moved into town uh, once. We thought the kids had left home. Not quite the case, but when we thought they'd left home. Uh, so I've been uh, in Scotland for 20 years uh, by trade, I'm an HR professional, been doing that for nearly 30 years. And seven years ago, um, I took the plunge to leave secure employment and start my own outsourced businesses, helping small businesses with HR and health and, se- health and safety in the Edinburgh area and wider in Scotland. So that's me, travel mad. Uh, I love my football. Uh, I love my music. Uh, but uh, yeah, first opportunity, first opportunity to get on a plane and get somewhere interesting. We are there. So you live in Edinburgh now. I live in Edinburgh. That's right. Wow. Yeah, there we go. We're only not probably not that far away from each other. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm near I'm near East Craigs. Okay, East Craigs. Okay. I'm in East Craigs, so I'm not probably not that far. I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're fairly central and uh, yeah, a beautiful city. I mean, everywhere I go around the world reminds me of how beautiful home is yes and, and it's important to remember that you know we we travel to see to experience different cultures and have new experiences and and meet interesting people and, and understand the world that we live in and the, the 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 planet and the nature that we live in and get a better handle on history and how everything jigsaws together but it's still great to come home and and live in such a beautiful part of the world there we go. So let's dive into the let's dive into the book. Let's just go into the book now. Let, or let's, in fact, let's not go. Let's the build up to the book. Obviously, you let's what from twenty sixteen. What made you up sticks the family and go traveling because you're addicted to travel? But what to kind of and talk about the. You can't. You're not just going to say like chuck this. Here's pack the suitcases and run out the door. You've obviously got a lot of preparation to do. So tell us the ins and outs of preparation you had to do before you finally jumped in the car or jumped in a plane or whatever on your before you physically can say right, we can now go. Yeah, I mean it came out of nowhere in a sense. Uh, although I talk in the the start of the book about the circumstances that led into it. Uh, and there was a bit of um, travel curiousness. There was an element of tragedy and some serendipity. And that all led to us being in a bar 
in southern Turkey uh, on a package holiday one summer, uh, summer of 2007. And uh, the kids said to us one night, sorry, I said to the kids one night, where would you like to go next on holiday kids? And they looked at me and they looked at each other and they said, could we have a think about that, please, daddy, and come back to you? Now, they were seven and nine at the time. So that's quite a thing for them to say. Wheel forward 24 hours, same bar, and they bring out a piece of paper. They unfold it. And on that piece of paper is a list. And it's a list of countries. And each country has a, an animal next to it. Now, kids love animals, don't they? Right? So, so we've got Australia kangaroos. We've got Madagascar lemurs. We've got um, Africa lions, Peru llamas, etc. And I looked at that list and just thought, wow, I quite fancy that myself. So my wife and I had a chat and I asked the question, I wonder if you can get a round-the-world ticket for families. Because, you know, that backpackers get these round-the-world tickets, but, you know, could, could you get one for families? So the next morning, same bar, 2007. So we're going to a – we're not going to a laptop. We're going to one of these giant PCs that used to exist that you almost had to feed the meter – Paid the bar and <laughs> went online. I think Google did exist in 2007. So we went on to Google and sure enough, you could. Three weeks after we got back, I'm negotiating my exit out of a well-paid, secure HR director role. And we made the decision to go. Now, you're quite right. There's then some preparation to do. So I left the job at the end of November. I hadn't really traveled that much. And I certainly hadn't traveled as a student. So I was aware there was some skills and knowledge I needed to gather. So I went off to Sri Lanka for three months as a volunteer. I did HR on a voluntary basis for a a non-governmental organization, an NGO uh, in Sri Lanka, right in the the fierce battle of their civil war. And there were bombs going off around me. It was quite an experience. But I was there with other volunteers from Scotland and the UK who were travel savvy. So I learned a load of stuff from them. We'd also put together a plan for the year, which I talk about in the book about how I did that. And the kids needed to finish their education, as in that school year. So they finished P3 and, no, sorry, they missed P6 and P4. They should finish three and five. Uh, And the day after they finished school, we hit the road and we were on a plane to South Africa. And wow. then we were, and then we traveled for a year through four continents. So what does it mean to get the permission from the school to kind of take them away? Was that not a process? Or because obviously taking kids out of school, is that how they, how they sort of the authorities or the people you write to, to say, yeah, we're gonna go travel for a year. I'm just gonna take the kids as well. So <laughs> Yeah, so so great question. So here's the irony. <laughs> if you take them out for a week without permission to go on holiday, it's against the law. Right. Take them out for an academic year, it's fine. We didn't even need permission. We sim- they simply left Dunbar Primary School for a year. Wow. They came off the register. The school, set- the school were very supportive. They okay. could see what, a, what, a op- what an opportunity these kids were going to get. Uh, I think they were probably a bit jealous, actually. Um, And they simply said to us, when you come back, you need to re-register for the school. We can't guarantee, however, they will get in the same class. 
And actually my daughter didn't, sorry, my daughter did. She got in the same class. Right. My son didn't. He went into a different class, but that was P7. Okay. And that's the transition year. So actually that was a good thing because it meant he mixed with a different group of friends and Quite knew yeah. more knew more people better as he then progressed into Dunbar Grammar School. Wow. So all, all worked very well. And then our job, of course, was to be their teachers for the year. Now, how difficult was that? Not at all. The, the world was their school. It was our school as well. We learned so, so much, but it was their school. And they were at an age, eight and 10, when they could read, they could write, they could assimilate knowledge. They'd got maths, basic maths. So we just built on that with their diaries, with books they read, with um, currency conversion. Uh, my son ran the budget from time to times, which, wow. as I talk about in the book, I sometimes regretted because he would say, no, daddy, we have no more money left. You can't have a beer tonight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that did happen. Uh, but th they were a perfect age, perfect age to, school, to, to learn out, out there in the world. So tell us the, well, let's start with day one of when you literally back, what you obviously, where was your first destination? What was your, what was the plan? First place? Yeah, so I, I, I chose uh, South Africa to start with. So we flew okay. to Cape Town. And I talk in the, the book about the personal reasons why Cape Town was always going to be the first destination. Uh, and with around the world ticket, you book it, per, you choose the number of continents. So we chose four. We excluded Europe because it's on our doorstep. Mm -hmm. We excluded North America because it would be kind of a bit, little bit familiar and um, would be quite expensive. Right. So we chose Africa, Asia, Oceania, so Australia and New Zealand, mm -hmm. and South America. Okay. And we started in one city by the sea with an iconic mountain, Cape Town. And we finished a year later looking at back at Cape Town across the South Atlantic Ocean from another city by the sea with an iconic mountain, Rio de Janeiro. So from you, you can wow. Yeah. Yeah. Literally see straight away. Well, you can't actually see it, obviously, but if you if you follow the crow you, or the seagull, <laughs> you go straight straight across back to Cape Town. Wow. So that was a that was a nice nice deliberate route. Um, and we went to 20 countries. Uh, we moved around. We stayed an average of three and a half nights in a place. So sometimes that was literally one night, one night, one night. Other times were probably three or four occasions where we stayed for a period between a week and four weeks and had a base because it's tiring, just continually traveling. So we needed mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and we had, I think I say in the book, how many uh, number of, uh, well, f I, I, I should have, but we had 40 flights. Um, 40 flights? 40 flights, yeah. Uh, 20 countries. We stayed in over 100 places, and we used 50, 50 different forms of transport. James, wow. Yeah. So we were busy. I was busy. So tell, tell us this, what was the personal reason regarding Cape Town that you went there first? Just to... Yeah, so I, I was a, a student during the 80s um, and my, my cause was the anti-apartheid movement. So I was passionate about that. Um, and I went to 
uh, the free Mandela 70th birthday concert at Wembley Stadium in 1988, when mm -hmm. we haven't seen what he looked like since the early 60s, and right. there was no prospect of his release. Two years later, I was back at Wembley Stadium and Mandela was on stage as a free man, wow. winning. Uh, in 2005, I went down to Trafalgar Square on a cold February day. I did a day trip Edinburgh to, to London to see Mandela launch the Make Poverty History campaign mm -hmm. with Bob Geldof. Um, and ironically, the last time I ever, the third and final time I saw Mandela in the flesh was the weekend before we flew to Cape Town for our trip. And oh. it just so happened it was his 90th birthday concert in Hyde Park. So, so we went to that. So that was one personal reason. And the other one was that in 2003, so five years before the trip, I did a one-week um, hike in the Cedarburg Mountains just outside of Cape Town, raising money for Maggie Centres, which many of your listeners will be familiar as, yes. with. It's a fantastic organisation that helps people who have cancer, including my late mother-in-law, who features in the book. Um, and uh, that was an amazing experience. I went with 60 other Scots. I count myself as a Scot these days after 20 years. So <laughs> 60 of us went out there, and about a dozen of us stayed on for a second week and touristed and partied in Cape Town. And it was just it was an, a brilliant experience. So all these things together just meant Cape Town was a logical place to start. It was also a nice soft landing because it was a it's a straight flight down. There's only about a one-hour time difference. So overnight flight, and you are there, and we were up Cape Town within three hours of landing at oh. Cape Town Airport. And, and we were off, <laughs> and we kept going. So, so let's just say, so you've gone from Cape Town. So how many days did you spend, spend in Africa? So we had two months in Africa. Okay. Uh, first five weeks was in South Africa, including uh, a trip into Swaziland, which is uh, within South Africa. Mm -hmm. Then we uh, went to uh, Mauritius and Madagascar. With Madagascar, of course, was on the kids' list because of the lemurs. Um, and that took us, that took us eight, eight weeks or so. That was the first two months of the trip, uh, and was a real animal extravaganza because of course you get to safari in Kruger as we did and other safari parks are available. Uh, and we saw many of the amazing lemurs within Madagascar. Wow. Many of which are endangered, of course. Right. Um, and we talk in the book. I, I've at various places. It includes the kids' diaries, so excerpts from the kids' diaries as, that they wrote as eight and ten-year-olds uh, as they went around the world. And uh, you know, Madagascar is is one of those examples um, because um, they had the amazing experience of hand-feeding ringtail lemurs wow. in the wild. Um, and, uh, yeah, just the most ex amazing experience for all of us. But it's one of the things that people are telling me as they're reading the book is they're, they're loving reading what I've written, but one of the highlights is reading what the kids wrote and how expressive and appreciative they were of the experiences that they were having. 
So we're so looking at I mean, just just to thinking how long you started writing the book when just a couple in lockdown no yeah yeah I, so the 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 trip was two thousand eight nine and I wrote blogs mm-hmm. at the time yeah so I wrote blogs yeah. at the time which were sanitized because my parents were reading them and I knew they'd be worrying uh, so you know this book is the whole story wow. So this, book, this yeah, this includes um, the worries, the fears, the anxieties, the accidents, the times that both kids nearly died. All wow. of that is in the book and wasn't in the blogs. So for the past decade or so, I've been saying at various points, I probably need to get around to writing that book. And there was never a right time. And... Um, there's a, there's a guy I know who is absolutely brilliant. He's a guy called Michael Heppel. And Michael is a, uh, a coach and has coached people like Davina McCall, Chris Evans, Sarah Cox, Patrick Keelty. Mm-hmm. He's, a motiv- he's one of the world's best motivational speakers. He's an event host, but he's also an uh, international best-selling author of business books. And in May last year, Michael ran a masterclass called Write That Book. Okay. And I saw it. Now, I, my business is in HR. 2020 was the mother of all years for my clients. So we were extraordinarily busy helping with furlough and everything else. So it was not the time. I looked at it and went, not a chance. You know, I was working 16-hour days just helping businesses survive. He announced in October he was going to run the masterclass again. And I'd seen the joy that some of the people in that group had got from writing their first book. And he ran a six-day pop-up group. And I thought, well, I'm still really busy. I'm still not sure I've got the time. But I'll do the six-day pop-up group. What's the worst that can happen? Now, that's a saying that's in the book. Right? When, when uh, I said to my wife, shall we go around the world? She said, what's the worst that can happen? We have to downsize the house. When I decided to start my own business, she said, what's the worst that can happen? You have to get another job. So I thought, what's the worst that can happen? I'll do the six-day pop-up group, and maybe I'll learn to write a bit better. By the end of day six, I had the title for the book. Are we there yet? I had the subtitle for the book year-long adventure that kept on giving. I had the promise, which is the blurb on the back. (laughs) Uh, Imagine quitting your secure job right before a recession to backpack around the world with two children aged eight and ten. What would it it be like to be that parent, let let alone that child? Come along on this inspirational, educational, and entertaining journey with an intrepid family of four who did just that. From Bali to Beijing, Edinburgh to Ecuador, and Madagascar to Machu Picchu, it certainly wasn't your average holiday. I had that, and I had the front cover. I'd gone through photos and found the cover that I'm sure your your listeners will be able to see, Um, and it's an image of the kids walking arm in arm in Madagascar. And suddenly all I had to do was write the words to tell the story that I already knew. And 80 days... After I wrote the first word, I had the first full draft. Wow. Now, I didn't intend to do that in 80 days. And it was only a few days later 
as I was thinking, gosh, I did that quite quickly. I wonder how long it took me. And I worked out it was 80 days. Now, of course, Phileas Fogg went around the world in 80 days. <laughs> so I thought it was quite a, quite a nice irony that I'd gone around the world again in a, in a, in a literary form in 80 days. So I then had to edit it and, of course, get it published, uh, which it has was released a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, so, yeah, people are loving it. So let's say back to So from Africa, when was your next stop? After yeah, so flight from Johannesburg to Hong Kong. Um, and after a few days in Hong Kong, we went into China. And we had a couple of weeks in China. Um which was fascinating, especially with two kids, because, because, of course, there's a country with a one-child rule at the time. Yes. So when you turn up with, a, with an eight-year-old, eight-year-old girl with long blonde hair and a 10-year-old Scottish boy with Scottish hair, <laughs> okay, uh, you are the centre of attention. So that was, that was great. And I became the uh, crowd control for the paparazzi in Tiananmen Square, amongst other things. Uh, we then had a couple of weeks in Japan, uh, which was infinitely fascinating. And from there, we went into Southeast Asia uh, and Bali, Borneo, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, Singapore, and somewhere else I'm not going to say because it'll be a spoiler. Right. Okay. Uh, and that was, uh, that was three months. So three months there. Uh, and then the next three months were in Australia. Right. And that, that included over the Christmas period. Uh, we spent Hogmanay at Sydney Harbour. Wow. Okay, so that was, that was a, an experience, which, again, I, I talk about the highs and lows of that. And the irony that um, whilst we were celebrating Hogmanay in Sydney, surrounded mainly by Scots, Princess Street was full of people from around the world, including many Australians. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small, small, turned up, down, up, turned upside down world. <laughs> yes, totally, totally. Yeah. How did you I, just uh, while travelling? Obviously, you've got you. How did you manage your obviously visa restrictions and things? I mean, that kind of was that a bit of a hurdle. Was that all right to get travelling to? Because obviously, you've got to have a lot of documents to go from when you're traveling and you make sure that you're legit and not just, you know what I mean? So how did you get over that hurdle? Yeah, the, it wasn't too bad actually, Fraser. So mm. um, one of my bugbears, uh, I hate bureaucracy. Mm. Now you might say, hold on a minute, you run an HR and health and safety business. You, you, you must love bureaucracy. I don't, I hate it. <laughs> you know, my business is about helping people and making a difference to their lives. That's what drives me, not the, not the paperwork, as important as it can be. So um, every, fl every flight into a new country, I'm having to fill out all these forms on the plane times four, and that used to drive me mad. And then more forms when you, when you land. Um, but actually in terms of visas, um, China was a bit complicated. So we had to use an agency in Hong Kong to sort that out for us, and that was quite expensive. Um, Madagascar, there was quite an expensive visa, uh, but that was on her arrival. I seem to remember Indonesia was the same, but many of the countries were visa-free because we were either there for a short period of time, mm -hmm. so it was just, it was just tourist, tourist entry, uh, or they were former members of the British Empire. Uh, so the UK sailed in, 
Um, Australia, I think you got in for 90 days. New Zealand, you got in for 90 days. Um, and I don't even remember getting visas for South America. I guess we must have done, but it doesn't 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 stay with me now as a strong memory. So no, it wasn't too much of a problem. So how did you budget for the? I mean, the budget, as like you said, your son did some of the budgets. How did you budget for a year out? Obviously, that must you obviously had a x amount of spending per day or whatever but how to budget for this not maybe when you get there and go oh let's buy that i want that or that looks nice let's take that'd be nice as a souvenir yeah. but obviously you can't just take what you buy and you've got to hump it all the way around till you eventually get back home so that's Absolutely. the interesting part so how did you budget and limit yourself to go being being the typical tourist thing to saying yeah, let's just do souvenir shopping. Before you know it, you can't fit in your case. Okay. <laughs> so, so how did you sort of balance that out? Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of stuff we didn't buy, um, although we did ship some, some stuff home at, at various points. So the thing with this is that you can you can spend almost as much, well, you can spend as much as you want, as much as you've got doing a year traveling around the, the world. You could stay in the Hilton Hotel every night. Okay. We didn't. You know, we camped, we stayed in hostels. We were on a tight budget, a budget that if we'd have done it for six months, we'd have had, a, in some senses, a more enjoyable time. Right. Okay. Because there were times when we really wanted to go in that lovely restaurant or even that nice cafe, but we were sat outside on a bench eating our butties. Wow. Because that's all we could afford, right? Okay. Um I constructed the budget in a spreadsheet and I looked at, I researched what the average cost was going to be per country. I multiplied that by the number of days that we were going to be there. And that gave me the budget for that country. And then I set aside a contingency that would provide for any disasters that we had, any miscalculations and any, perhaps any additional treats that we might, we might want to have. I'm not going to put this, I'm not going to share the spoiler, no, that's but, I made, but I made a fundamental mistake when I was okay. sat, on my, sat on my sofa in Dunbar doing that, which came back and we realized that in the trip and it had all sorts of consequences. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So um, the budget was very important and obviously we then tallied it every day, which is where my son came in and recorded that uh, against our projected spends. So, yeah, you were constantly, constantly adding up. It was right, okay, how much, how much did those coffees cost? How much did that bus fare cost? How much did lunch cost? Everything was constantly going into your head, and you were calculating it all the time. And that was, do you know what, for, for us and for the kids, that's a great life skill because there are times in your life and, you know, the people listening to this right now, you know, who are counting every penny. Um, and again, I will give this spoiler. Um, I left a secure job, um, 2000, end of 2007, very confident that when we got back in the summer of 2009, I would walk into another job very easily. When we came back in summer of 2009, you'll remember Fraser that the world has changed. Yeah. It was the last recession and I spent a year being unemployed. I was a wow. year unemployed when we got back. And actually those skills 
around budgeting and financial awareness was so essential. Uh, and, you know, I was going to Asda at uh, half seven in the evening to see what was reduced so we could have it, for, have it for our food the next day. Not that different from being on the trip. So, yeah, it played a big, big factor. But I was very conscious when I was writing the book that I didn't want, and it's not, I didn't want this to be a pity party. So this yes. wasn't about, oh, poor us, we had no money. We had an amazing opportunity. And there were times when we were a bit cash-starved. There were times when we were homesick. There were times when we think when things went wrong. That's all part of life, and it's all part of the charm of the story. But actually, a lot of amazing things happened as well. And I'm picking little bits. Like, obviously, I'm just picking little bits up from like, giving you, she so don't reveal spoilers, but I mean, that point of having no, I mean, what part of the trip when you said your kids almost <laughs> almost died, which is not exactly something you go, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that must have been a bit of a good grief. I, like, wow. I mean, what, without revealing too much, how did that come about or what, what was the. Yeah, they were, the way I look at it, they were childhood incidents that happened to occur in remote, exotic locations right. that could have just so easily happened in Scotland. Wow. Okay. So one, one involved a bike and the right. other one involved swimming. These things can happen anywhere. They, ju they just happen to occur uh, whilst we were traveling. And, you know, I always, I would look at it like this. You know, people say, um, wasn't it risky traveling around the world? You know, and you say, what's the worst that could happen? Well, your kids nearly died. That's the worst. That's what could have happened. Yeah. And I say, yeah. And, and I can't remember now. I need to check whether it was the year before or just a few weeks before, but we'll all remember that there were Scots going on their summer holidays to safe destinations from Glasgow Airport and a terrorist drove a bombed truck into Glasgow Airport. Yeah. yeah. So it can happen in Glasgow Airport or it can happen in China or it can happen in South America. Life happens, things happen, nothing is guaranteed. But the view that we took on uh, for our travels and we've taken into our life and our kids are taken into their lives is roll the dice sometimes. Yes, understand the risks, but make things happen because you never know where it might lead you. So looking at your the experiences that you, I mean, the thing, you obviously saw a lot of things that you're in different cultures, especially the things that may happen over in these countries, especially more like your China, South Africa, Asia, things that happen there that, it, it ha it's totally different to what happens here, what you can do and what you can sort of get away with in a sense uh, over here that you would literally be, you could not get away with, you'd be in jail, you'd be lost, you'd never be found. If you did anything, what you would get away with in the UK, in these countries. So how did you, I mean, that must have been to concentrate on, right, what are the laws, what can you do, what can't you do? That must have been an education in itself to what you have to literally be very careful Enjoy the whole, enjoy the trip, enjoy the holiday, but you can't do X because it's not the UK. So how did you get around that? Yeah, the you 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 need to do your research, uh, and we did. I mean, we didn't always have a guidebook because I couldn't carry twenty guidebooks with me in a backpack. Yeah. 
sometimes I'd be on the, the flight to the next country reading the guidebook for the first time. Um, mm. And actually, we did Japan, for example, without a guidebook, but I'd still been online and researched it. Great. So Japan would be an example where there are, there are etiquettes that you need to learn. Uh, yeah. And I give some examples of these in the book. One, for example, um, is it's frowned on to eat in the street. Okay. Okay. So walking down the street, eating a packing of crisps, packet of crisps or something. That's right. that's viewed as being rude. Um, so we we were sat one lunchtime having our butties again. Couldn't afford the restaurant. We sat on a wall having our butties. Um, hoping we couldn't be noticed at the back of a temple. Um, and a, a, an older lady was walking past with her dog. Now, Japan was the first time we'd ever seen coats on dogs. We see them everywhere now here, yeah. but we didn't see them in the UK in 2007, but they were in Japan. Um, so I picked, I can still picture, I've got a photo of it somewhere, of this little thin dog with a coat on it. And um, the dog did its business. And not only did the woman pick down and pick it up and put it in the bag, she then got a tissue out of, our po- out of her pocket and wiped the dog's backside. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's okay to do that, but it's not okay to eat your butties on a wall. <laughs> right? To us, that's a bit weird, but... We had yeah. to learn it. We had to learn this stuff, um, and not just in you know exotic places like Japan, but even even countries like Australia. Right. Okay. There are there's the there's the story in the book of um, my wife went in with the two kids into a, a chippy in Western Australia and asked for a five dollar bag of chips, which at the time so that's probably about a two pound fifty bag of chips. Okay. She had to plead with the, the woman behind the counter because she would not sell her a $5 bag of chips because it was too many chips for three people. Even when she said my husband's outside, four people, she would not sell it. Now, we're Scottish, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> £2.50 worth of chips between four is not a problem. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, lots and lots and lots of stuff like that. Fascinating. The world is just a just a uh, it's a school it's a classroom and wow. you know whether whether it was in our year away or some of the trips that we've had since uh it's these it's these little details sometimes that are as as memorable and as educational as it is go, going to the great barrier reef or the great wall of china or Machu Picchu or some of these other amazing things that we were also able to do they're the ones that they're the ones that people ask about, you know, where did you go? Where were the best places? But actually it's, it's the little life experiences and incidents that you, you get from travel that um, we so love and still do. So what do you, now you just, uh, now you've written the book, where do you, where do you hope to take what we, would you see? Obviously you've written it as more of like a, let's say like a hobby in a sense because you've written it just for fun, because it's fun of what you experience you in your life, and it's a great sort of biography part of your life that you of taking the family away, and to educate people in some way, and it's just something you, you've done. 
where do you hope to maybe take, you know, you're getting, po- you're on podcast interviews, you're on a podcast interview now, but you've been connecting with people. Uh, what's your, are you just going to let things kind of gradually unfold? Do you hope to maybe speak about it in front of people or do you, what's your kind of aim for the book and or plans, you know, going forward? Yeah. So this was always going to be a legacy project. I would write the book for the family. That was, that was the aim. And then I started to realize as friends started to edit chapters for me that actually I'd got something really quite good here. And it was, you know, it was a, it was a page turner. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's funny. And particularly at a time like now when we can't travel, yes. particularly at a time like now where so many parents are having to homeschool, mm-hmm. the story of world schooling around the world yes. has a connection. It's something people are interested in. So um, I don't mind. Well, I do, but I don't really mind whether people buy the book or not. I'd love people to read the book. Okay. okay. So, yeah. I want people to be inspired. But if from this chat, just listening to me inspires a few people or brightens people's day, then this has been worthwhile. Okay. Okay. No, I'm I'm not going to make money from a book. You don't make money from books. (laughs) The the numbers are ridiculous, right? Uh, Amazon make money from this book. I I really don't. Um, So I'm starting to do podcasts. Um, You've kindly introduced me to a couple of people already. Um, so, and those, those chats are not just in the UK, they're also international as well. That's great fun. I'm enjoying doing that. Uh, the book will be available to local bookshops in the next few weeks. So that process takes a little bit longer than getting it on Amazon. But what I'm then going to be doing is contacting independent bookshops within Scotland and across the UK, A, to see whether they'll stock it, but also to offer online events. And the odd one might be interested. It might fit with the theme that they've got. Uh, So that could lead to opportunities. Uh, It's already been featured in the Edinburgh Evening News. And it's already been featured in the Scotsman, British release. Mm -hmm. I also had two launch events, um, one with Michael Heppel, who I've talked about. And the other one, I was interviewed by the chief executive of the Edinburgh International Film Festival. So... This is all part of the story now. Uh, will book events come along? I don't know. There's lots of book clubs. So if anybody is involved in a book club or knows of book clubs, then you know this might be a book that they might be interested in, in reading together. Uh, okay. And I think because it's about education, it might be of interest for schools. Got now, you. right now... Right now, in where are we? March 2021. I think schools have got enough on their hands at the minute. But let's get past COVID, get back to normality. And I could see an opportunity potentially to be talking just to, to, to local schools about the book as well. So who knows? Who knows where it will go? It might be, you know, a, a decent sale so far. Maybe nobody else will buy it. Maybe I've sold the last copy already. I suspect not. But it's, you know, the... The, the trip was the year-long adventure that kept on giving. I have a funny feeling that the book may also be part of that year-long adventure. It just keeps on giving and will take me to, to new places. Who so knows? Just, just uh, with the book, you all, just over the last year, you were saying you were quite busy with work. So you were basically, because you were, your background's HR, what, what kind of help were you giving small businesses to 
cope with the last year and what's been going on? Uh, we were giving them, I think, a combination of technical help, trying to understand the ever-changing government regulations. Mm-hmm. We were giving them commercial help. So how do you navigate your business through this situation? Uh, do you use the furlough scheme? Do you reduce headcount? Uh, what about your other costs? How do you make sure you're health and safety compliant so you manage the risks of that? So commercial advice. And to be frank, Fraser, we were giving them emotional support. Got you. This was a tough, tough place. And being a trusted advisor, sometimes a critical friend, and quite often a soldier, a shoulder to sometimes literally cry on, was really, really important for local businesses. Uh, so, yeah, it was full on. It was full on. And I've never given as much free advice as I did last year as well. Uh, and, you know, I believe in serendipity. The trip told, taught me that. Uh, you help people. It will come back. It might not be from that person. It might be from somebody else. But the, the universe is an amazing place and karma happens. Uh, and, yeah, did lots of free advice. And that, that's worked for my business, for my team. Uh, I have a wonderful managing director who runs the team for me, giving me the space to, to write the book and now promote it. And I suspect to write other books in the future. Uh, although I have promised my, my wife that I won't write another book this year. Yeah, <laughs> she, uh, she wants me back. It's, sure. uh, yeah, it's been an intensive process. <laughs> you might end up, you might, she might not get you back if you're doing all these podcast interviews. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking, sorry, I've got another podcast interview. <laughs> uh, I will recommend you to, as I said, we'll connect you with a guy called Daniel Gomez. He's in Texas, uh, San Antonio, Texas. Uh, he's very good. He t- does Daniel Gomez Inspires. So he's, uh, I will rec- I'll connect you guys up on Facebook. Uh, Thank you so much. That'd be great. Yeah. He's a really good guy, uh, brilliant guy to chat to, and uh, very inspiring as well. So, and I think, uh, yeah, maybe who knows where it'll be opportunities. But I think, yeah, yeah it sounds like I can probably see you, uh, Bobby, get, guess you, I could, wouldn't surprise me if you're at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Uh, excuse me with well, this book. Well, I have, I have a, <laughs> I, I, I stood outside Waterstones on Princess Street last week mm-hmm. and um, I took a photo of the window. And right. you can see me, in, you can see my reflection in the window. And I put it into one of my uh, Facebook groups. Mm-hmm. And I said, is it wrong to be standing outside Waterstones dreaming of having your book in the window? Right. And, and of course, people came back and said, no, it's not. Go for it. Uh, and then one of my friends actually went on to Canva and put my book in Waterstones' window. <laughs> the image in the window. So I was joking with my wife yesterday about how I might be, I don't know if there'll be an Edinburgh Book Festival this year, um, but yeah. the next time there is, I'll probably be in that tent where you buy all the books, putting my book on various stands and uh, <laughs> pouncing on people as they pick it up. I won't. Uh, I promise Edinburgh Book Festival. But yeah, I, never know. I, I, I enjoy telling the story. I think people enjoy hearing about it. it if my story and my family's story inspires one person to do the same or their version of the same, then the whole thing's been worthwhile. So yeah, any opportunity I have to talk about it, 
and spread the experience. I'm delighted to do so. So where can people connect with you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, so uh, the, the website is familytrippers.co.uk. Okay. We call ourselves the Family Trippers. So familytrippers.co.uk. Uh, and on the website, they can buy a signed copy of the book or they can buy the audio book. The book itself uh, is available as a paperback and an ebook on Amazon at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's called Are We There Yet? So Are We There Yet? And Ian Pillbeam, and you will only find one book. Um, I am on Twitter, at Trippers Family. And I am on Instagram, at Original Family Trippers. There you go. And although you won't find photos of our travels in the book, you will find me posting a photo from the world every day on Instagram. Yesterday, it was mojitos in Havana. Uh, today it's my daughter having her ear bitten by a monkey in Bali. Oh, no, can't have been nice. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, not ideal, not ideal. Well, that's cool. Well, we'll have all these show notes, uh, all these notes in the show notes um, where connections where you can connect with Ian and basically we can also have the link to where you can buy the book on Amazon, whether it's Kindle or paperback. And uh, even maybe a link to the New Year's Watherston store <laughs> coming soon. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> you might just see it on a billboard on Edinburgh soon before driving by. Uh, hope, but no, it's uh, been great to chat to Ian. Um, but his books want to say shout out to people who do support the show. as Eileen Smith, Guy Cook from the Guy Cook pod- podcast. Um, Ephel Etham from Frame Your Day Wears, Akira Ringold, uh, Benita Charles, uh, Brent Mann, uh, many people who have supported the show, Daniel Gomez, who I'm connected with recently. Um, I just want to say thank you to these people who support each uh, myself and I uh, support them backwards uh, as well. So it's all good. And I'm glad I've been able to connect Ian to other podcasters and we'll hope to you can uh, recommend them and connect them to other people as well. So you can talk about his wonderful experience of uh, basically a year in travel, the four, four sort of continents and uh, the experience of several countries and several flights and ups, downs and near-death experiences, which you probably couldn't really make it up. Uh, but um, it sounds like a, a, a film, but it's actually real life. Uh, but uh, we want to say thank you to Ian. And as I say, we'll have all the links where you can connect with him on the show notes. And um, yeah, and we'll, as I say, we'll make sure you buy the book and read it. And for those tra- travel anoraks or kind of, I can't remember the word he said for a travel addict, but I'm sure, what was it? What's the word for a travel addict again? The word is dromomania. Dromomania. <laughs> if it's from a year of furlough uh, names and this, that, and uh, the amount of names we've learned over since COVID, uh, Dromomania, since another one added to the list of the words that we've never really used to say over the course of a year, we never th- thought of, but now we have. So, but uh, yeah, Ian, thank you, thank you for being on the show, and I hope they yeah, enjoy that. <laughs> My pleasure, been great to be with you. Thanks and very much great. for the opportunity, Fraser. No problem. Well, listen, take every take every. Start again, put my teeth in. <laughs> take, take care, everybody, until the next show. And uh, you'll we'll connect and you can connect with Ian, as I say, uh, out with and go from there. And hopefully, for those travelers out there, there's, there's your next uh, adventure. Take care. Bye for now. <laughs>